I recognize that you are conservative. Right wing, left wing, I don't know which wing you are. But there is, tomorrow I'm told is going to be Christmas. I've given you a gift, it's on your seat. It's a candy cane. Now some people already ate the gift, it's amazing. But there is something that looks like this. Now you've seen it before, you have it and been told, but I've been told that there was a, a story that behind the candy cane that there was a Christian man and candy maker in Indiana who wanted to share his faith. And so he came up, since he was in the business of making candies, that he will share his faith or the gospel by creating what we have was the candy cane. I'm told he started off by making it all white. First, the white speaks to the purity of Christ and his virgin birth. And then afterwards, he sure made it hard and he made it hard so that it represents the rock because Jesus Christ is our rock of salvation. He is indeed the solid rock. Then if you look at the shape of it, it looks like the letter J. Yes, right, Jade? Yes, so it represents Jesus Christ. If you turn it the other way, it represents like a staff or a hook, the shepherd, and he is reminded to all of us that he is our great shepherd. And then if you look closer, you see some little narrow streaks of red. The narrow streaks could be representative of the stripes that which he bore for your sin and my sin. But hey, not only were there stripes, there's big, dark red, broad striped red, speaks to the fact that he bled for us. So Jesus Christ died shedding his blood for your sins and my sins. So if tomorrow morning there is no prize for you under the tree, you have already been given your gift of a candy cane. Amen. Now, I need your help this morning, so would you help me if I ask you, I know I've said earlier um, today that sometimes if you ask people to assist you, some people will assist you, some people will not assist you, and the way they will demonstrate that they won't assist you, that is, that they will remain silent. For example, if I ask you to count for me and I say, when I point on this side, would you say one? And if I point in the middle, and the middle will include the balcony, would you say two? And then over to my right, if I point over here, would you say three? Now, even though I didn't ask you, I'm going to practice and see if you are with me or you're going to leave me hanging up here uh, or not. I'm going to point. I like to. <laughs> okay, let me try this. I'm going to change the numbers. Um, I'm going to stick with the letters of the alphabet. I want to say A. When I point to you, say A. I want you to say B. I need you to say C. Um, let's try it. I like to. Okay. Um, give me a. Give me a. I love this group. <laughs> uh, give me a uh, man, you all are good? Okay, so now, now I understand because of the size of the audience, there is absolutely the possibility that there might be some people in here who have amnesia. Because I'm sure when I point to some people, they won't remember what it is they're supposed to say. So I, I'm going to practice just one more time, just to make sure. And, and by the way, so if I continue going, this will be A. I think this is B. This will be C. If I come back over here, what do you think you will be? 
Um, let me be a little bit more clear in my instructions. Let's try this. If I say A, then I want you to say A, I want you to say B, I want you to say C. I'm going to come back. I'm going to say all the letters of the alphabet, and I want you to come D. But the only way you'll know you're supposed to say D if you're paying attention, or if you're listening to what they say over here, which will be C, and if they get caught up on what you're supposed to be saying, we will have a mass confusion, you know, and it will really tell me that you really don't know the letters of your alphabet. <laughs> you know, it will speak very... Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I do get your support. Well, let me tell you what I want to invite you this morning um, very briefly, and briefly is relative, but I will be talking quicker. So if I speak quickly and you listen fast, we will be out of here before you notice. All right? Well, I want to talk about four things with you this morning. The first thing I want to do as an overview is to simply say this, that words are important. Words are very important. Words are also powerful. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the fact that Christmas is all about God. All about God. And if it is all about God, God is also a spirit. So that. Okay. Now, that's intentional. Stay with me. And then thirdly, I want to talk about seven attributes of God. Now, seven is being ambitious. Because any one attribute that I will speak with can take a while. But I'm going to drive fast through the seven, so I do ask you to please buckle up with your seatbelt. Stay with me. It will be a legalized hit and run, because I will only mention it, explain it, and move on. And then finally, I would like to share with you the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Let that resonate with you. Sometimes I think we don't think about it, but Jesus Christ is God. Now, in the morning, like this morning, most people, I say, once theology, what it is you believe about God, usually you can't see it in the morning, well, in the morning light or during the light part of the day. In other words, only when we are in the darkness or in moments of our lives when things are not going well for us, then we invoke the presence of God. That's when we pray, only when we are in trouble. But if everything is going well, we tend to forget to pause and say, God, thank you, because everything is going so well. But a good example of that is you ever walk in your house and somebody changed the furniture around and they didn't tell you and you were walking without the light and a, part, a member of your body tend to stub a part of the lower extremities, hit something? What normally comes out of your mouth? I hope it's something righteous, you know? I, I, I hope it is something that speaks to your theology. You know, do people normally hit their toe and say, praise the Lord? You know, or you say something else. See, when you're in the dark, <laughs> then your true theology comes out, you know? Let's go back to the first thing so I can be quick. Words are important. Words are the dominant medium through which we express thought, except for those who probably are hearing impaired, they use sign language. But otherwise, most of us here use words. About seven years before my mother was born, an American scientist discovered and purported, published, announced that there were 48 chromosomes that make up the human species. 
48. That became the mantra as people quoted that over and over again for more than 10 years, for more than 20 years, for more than 30 years, they were saying that the human species being has 48 chromosomes. Then a year after I was born, a Swedish, a Swedish, a Swedish scientist discovered that the American scientist Theophilus was wrong. There are 46 instead of 48 chromosomes. So, for more than three decades, we had 48 chromosomes, and then somebody discovered the truth 30 plus years later and found out that there is indeed only 46 as opposed to 48. This wrong information, and I believe it has application across other spectrums, but you know that wrong information that is repeated frequently enough often becomes accepted as fact, right? If you get wrong information and somebody keep repeating it, you believe it is true. A good example would be how many wise men went to visit Jesus? Which one? Three. You have no clue. Now, uh, uh, um, if you ask most people, I was going to say children, but some of them are older. But besides, all of you all are children anyhow, because you were born. So you are somebody's child, so you are children. But at least 51%, my guess, would say that there were three wise men. How do we get three wise men? Because we attached the wise men to the gift. We said they got gold, Frankenstein. No, Frank, yeah, okay, Frank, yeah, and, 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 and myrrh, right? And so since there were only three, we assume that there are only three gifts, I mean, three wise men. But that's not true. There is no scriptural evidence to support that there were only three wise men. And we sometimes perpetuate. As a matter of fact, I was at a certain place some time ago, like a Monday, when we had a live manger scene at a certain place, number 62 on Collins Avenue. I'm not calling the name of the place. It was a church, you know. Um, and in the parking lot to the north, uh, we had... Uh, wise man dramatization of that. And boy, by the way, there was a Herod who was there. He was terrible. <laughs> you know, thanks for the poor. You acted very well. But as we were saying, these three wise men, again, for the people, the little people who are watching, they're thinking there were three regal-looking wise men walking with their gifts. You know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the kid would naturally conclude that there were three wise men. And so when that child goes to another place and they say, how many wise men were there? Three. You know, you know. But, the, but the, they won't be able to find support for that in the book because it's being repeated over and over so often that we believe it is true. That is known as reinforcement syndrome. Reinforcing, reinforcement syndrome. Words, I tell you, do possess power. They determine the course of our lives. But the most important words are the words of God. In John's gospel, we find these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, we know that from memory. 
but you ever just stop moving so fast and slow down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow. If you drop down to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. Think about that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who do you think the word was? God was before Christmas. Christmas is all about God. And when we pause to consider the force and reality of this truth, our reflexed response must be one of adoration. Therefore, I invite you to listen to some selective words from the word of God and come with me this morning. Come, let us adore him. Let us adore the one who is God, the word. Now today, as we mentioned already, is recognized around the world as Christmas Eve. For some, it's the final opportunity for the acquisition of those last-minute present shopping or purchases and gifts to be wrapped. For others, it's the heightened anticipation of hoping to receive that special gift that they always wanted, not necessarily needed. But that's what Christmas Eve is all about. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to these words from the King James Version of the Bible. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth, whose goings forth, you see, goings, don't miss that. See the S on the end? More than one, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Wonder who that is. Tomorrow morning, our materialistic world with, will manifest the culmination of its most materialistic time of the year, we call Christmas, with expensive gadgets and gizmos. There's new clothing, jewelry, parties, ham, and turkeys stuffed with crawfish, lights and laughter, candles and trees. But the Christ, but the Christ, the real reason and the real significance of Christmas will somehow be pushed into the shadows, hidden, ignored, eclipsed by all of these events and things. And maybe just casually, it was a birthday of somebody else. It was a, it was a great man. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Christmas is more than the celebration of a great man's birth. God himself, in the second person of the Godhead, entered into time and our space and into our frail humanity, surrounded by the putrid, repugnant environment of our sin to rescue us. Scripture informs us that at some point in eternity past, the tribunal of the Godhead convened a meeting, and out of that meeting, a decision was made to make man in their image. So said, so done. But shortly after that, man fell, man, man sinned. And God came in, 
and pass judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first indication of the gospel, when it says this, and God was talking to Satan when he says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. From this verse all the way to the book of Revelation, the Bible, we see the promises being carried out in recorded history. We see the expansion of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the formation of civilization, and the division of nations. We see the rise of Israel, the promise of the Messiah through Israel, and the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. I say again, words have power. Words are important. But God, the Word, God in his essence or essential being is spirit. We say it all the time. God is spirit. What does that mean? It means that God is immaterial. He is immortal. He is invisible and is all intelligent. He is a willing and active being, but he differs from all other spirits because he was not created. But he also is an immense and infinite spirit, an eternal one, which has neither beginning nor end. He is therefore a spirit by way of eminency, as well as effectively being the author and former of all other spirits. But you're thinking, I can hear you thinking, wait a minute, if God is spirit and he's invisible and we can't see him, yet the Bible speaks to the fact that people saw God. Really? Well, let's, let's check certain things out. Let's see what the Word says. In John's Gospel, First John chapter 4, verse 12, it says, No man has beheld God at any time. Now, I take that just as it says. No one has beheld God at any time. Okay. John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 46, says, not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says this. Who alone, talking about God, who alone possesses immortality, and dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable, the light, the brilliance, the luster, the beautific radiance of God's radiance or light. No one can approach that whom no man has seen or can see. You've never seen it, nor can you see it. In other words, you've heard the song say, you can't touch this. Well, you can handle this kind of light, all right? To him be honor and to him be eternal dominion. Case closed, amen. That's God and his essential essence. He came though, and he became one of us. God, imagine this, God sent God to earth. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. No man, so when you walk across the street around a neighborhood or wherever, and somebody says they saw God, well, no man has seen God at any time. They own the only begotten God. 
who is in the bosom of the Father, in that intimacy with the Father, he has explained or exegeted him. The Father then gave his son, his own son for us, for our salvation. See, as some people will say right up in there, that's a good place to say, hallelujah. No, you've got to be more than that. This, this, is, this is important. God sent God for us, to us, for our salvation. That's a hallelujah movement. That's why I invite you to come. Let us adore him because he's worthy to be adored. But I understand because you're still thinking because of what you've been told that but people saw God. No, I understand you cannot comprehend because there's references in the Old Testament in particular where they say God appeared. Well, I understand. What is incomprehensible to the mind is consequentially invisible to the eyes. That's why when there is references to seeing God in scriptures, you are actually experiencing what I refer to as a VAT effect, a V-A-T effect. V meaning that you, when God shows up and you say you saw God, the V is for vision. Either that person was in a dream and God appeared to them in a vision or a dream. That's the V. The A is an anthropomorphic appearance of God, which simply means that we attribute to God humans' characteristics, just so we can understand it, and we apply it to God. Like, God has hands. God ain't got no hand in this essential being. But for us to understand it, we need something to relate to. So we attribute things that are characteristic of humans, and we apply it to God. That's where the A in the Vat comes from. And then there's the T, theophanies, or the appearance, when God may take on a form for human. And I'm suggesting to you that he shows up Jesus Christ was busy all through the Old Testament. And so when you read that an angel of the Lord appeared, the angel of Jehovah, I'm suggesting to you that that was Jesus before he was incarnate. You remember that lady who was the maid of Sarah named Hagar? Yep. And she was her boss. Tell her, get out, um, because you seem to have an attitude now that she is um, pregnant with Abraham's child. But you remember how this even came about? It was Sarah's idea. <laughs> and then she gave her upset. And then she said, get out. You know? So the woman was going back to where she came from, which was Egypt. And, and then the angel of the Lord showed up to, on the road and said to her, um, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where are you going? Now, it says the angel of the Lord asked that. If you read further on, based on the dialogue and the discussion, you know that, as a matter of fact, Hagar knew at the end, she said, wow, I was talking to God, but it was showed up as the angel of the Lord. Showed up. Let's go quickly before some people look down at the watch. Abraham, remember Abraham hosted some people in the middle of the day for lunch? He said three men showed up. This is when they were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and they showed up, stopped to Abraham, right? And um, two of them left, and then Abraham stayed back, was bargaining with him, and says, suppose there's 50 people in there, would you still... Because Abraham had a relative, a nephew who lived in Sodom. And if you re read it, Genesis chapter 17, 18, 19, fascinating read. But watch the dialogue of, and they. It seems that he showed up as three men. But if you read on, then it says, and he said, one of them. Then at one point, while Abraham was negotiating for time, and I guess a number of people dropped, whether God will save Sodom and Gomorrah, they said two of them left and went ahead. They head down to Sodom, you know, before they do what they need to do. 
but what, and the one stayed, and the one who Abraham was talking to was God. And then after he was finished, when the last deal was, that's it, he says he left. This is absolutely amazing. Then you remember this other one, when during the same time that Lord rained down, this is in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. It says that the Lord rained down burning sulfur from the Lord of heaven. And then Moses, you remember Moses? I sometimes when people ask me, where are you from? I say, I'm from the bush. All right. Andrews is a big yard. But the bush is not a bad place because I'm in good company because Moses heard a voice of somebody speaking in the bush. Who do you think that was? So God was in the bush. All right. So when you read that Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, it says in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared. The angel of the Lord appeared. By the time you get down to verse 6, it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I'm telling you, Jesus is God because he is, and he's our Savior. I invite you, oh, come, let us adore him. But let's go quickly to some of those other attributes of God. God is eternal. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, it says that the eternal God is the, ever, is, is the dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Just, just one reference. There are, there are many, but for the sake of time. That's what it says. Not only will God exist undiminished everlastingly into the future, but he has existed identically throughout the infinite past. God is eternal. Oh, come, let us adore him. God is also self-existent. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and to the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. By self-existence, we refer to that unique attribute of God by which he has existed eternally and will always exist. All events have causes. All creatures have been created. God is the uncaused cause and the uncreated creator. God did not depend on anything outside of himself for his existence, nor will he ever depend upon anyone for it. So let's come and adore him. He is also omnipresent. God is omnipresent. It's the same as ubiquity. I didn't say ubiquity. I say ubiquity. This allows him to interact with us in any place at any time, even in multiple places simultaneously. We mean that God is everywhere present in his fullness of being. While it is beyond the scope of our understanding to grasp how God can be ubiquitous but act locally, we accept it, just like we accept the incarnation. I don't understand how deity and flesh could come together to form one person, yet at the same time not mixing. But I accept that. I apprehend it. I don't fully comprehend it. That's the same thing with God's omnipotence and his uh, omnipresence. Let's go down to the fact that he is indeed omnipresent, omniscient, by the way. In Psalm 147, verse 5, it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. When we say that God is omniscient, we mean that he knows all that there is to know. There is nothing outside the scope of comprehension, concept, understanding, or attention. He does not study or learn. You can't teach God nothing. 
Nothing you can bring to him that is new. He is never surprised because his knowledge is insurmountable. God knows everything. That's comforting to me as his child. Also, God is all-powerful. The word for that is omnipotence. God is omnipotent. In Jeremiah chapter 32, it says in verse 17 and 18, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. That's God's power. But Jesus Christ also has power. He has said, remember in Matthew chapter 28, he says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has power over nature. Jesus has power over his own life. No one can take his life from him. Jesus has power to physically heal and cast out demons. He has power to transform his body. He has power to save you to the uttermost. Those who come through God to him, come to God through him. Jude says in 24 that he's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. His omnipotence is to fuel the engine of his sovereignty. It is restricted to that which is holy and that which is wise and good. So I invite my brothers and sisters to come today and let us adore him, let us love him. His sovereignty is a final attribute. Well, this sovereignty is an attribute. Then I'll come back to his immutability. His sovereignty in Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 and 13, it says, Yours, O God, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. God is immutable. Malachi 3.6 tells us that immutability we speaks in God's that he is a great source of comfort for me as a believer when I think of the fact that God does not change his mind on me. The fact that God does not change his mind, his characteristics or his plans or anything else is security better than any earthly insurance company or any armed forces. It is a guarantee that his quality and his character will never change. For me as a believer, that is indeed encouraging. Jesus says again in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It tells again of God's divine control, God's divine control over what happens. There is nothing outside the control of his loving hand. The designs and the schemes of the wicked, God got, got that under control as well. The natural disasters that happen, God has that under control. Works of demons, including Satan, God has that under control. Here again is a huge source of comfort for the believer, for it helps him to know that no matter how chaotic a situation may seem, he really need not fear, for God is still in control. God is still on the throne. Oh, come with me then. Let us adore him. Finally, I want to talk about the ultimate theophany, that is the incarnation. That's this act of grace whereby Christ took on human nature in union with his divine person and became man. He who never began to be, but eternally existed 
and continued to be what he eternally was, began to be what he eternally was not. What did you just say? All I'm saying is that Christ is both God and man. That's amazing. This union is what we call hypostatical. That is, it is personal. The two natures are not mixed, and it is perpetual. You will see Jesus. He'll look like man, fully man, when we see him again, because that is the nature that he took on to be this, what we call the incarnation. Let us hear then. Now, I talked about this briefly, but I mentioned it earlier, that this was indeed a mystery and a great one, too, when it says, God says, let us make man in our image. That is amazing. But what I think is even greater is this. But when God, the eternal, infinite God, decided to become man, this is simply astounding to me. It's incredibly amazing. It is absolutely magnificent that God, choosing to become man, this, I don't comprehend it. It's amazing. In Colossians, about Jesus, Colossians 1.15, it describes Christ as the image of this God who is invisible. He is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians 2.9, it says, For in him dwells the fullness, the totality of deity bodily. So when you look at Jesus Christ, he is the very embodiment, the incarnation of all that God is. You, you, you get that? You, 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 you feel me? You know, that's what it is. I mentioned earlier, because you've got to be careful when you say feel. Yeah, I couldn't say feel long ago, because people have changed the, the words these days, you know. Because in the past, you didn't, people now invite people to feel them. But back then, don't feel me. Don't feel me low, don't feel me up. <laughs> anyway. In Revelation, chapter 19, verse 16, it says that he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. My brothers and sisters, behold your king. That's Jesus Christ. Come then, let us adore him. So this Christmas, as you celebrate, please do remember the essence of it. And simply put, it can be done in three sentences, three simple things. It simply says Christmas and why we have Christmas is this. Because I am a sinner, and so are you. If I was not a sinner, you were not. If humans didn't sin, there wouldn't be. There would be an, we'd be celebrating in another reason. But because I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and because God loves us, a sinner needs a savior. I need a savior. You need a savior. And whether you think you're a sinner, you need a savior. And because we need a savior, Jesus Christ is that savior. You need him. I need him. That's Christmas in a nutshell. Because someone has once said that if our greatest need has been information, then God would have sent you an educator. If our greatest need has been technology, God would have sent you a scientist. If our greatest need has been money, God would have sent you an economist. If our greatest need has been pleasure, God would have sent you Ronnie Butler. I mean, God would have sent you an entertainer, you know. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior. There's a praise the Lord, hallelujah moment right up in there. You know, Christ is indeed our hope. He is our hope and our glory. You and I are the answers to the question. So after tomorrow, people would come, the skeptics would come, and they want to know this. They say, is God real? Are the promises of God true? Does God truly live? Does he truly answer prayer? Is this for real? You, you and I are the answers. And so how you celebrate Christmas 
will give them answers to their questions. And though we might think they shouldn't ask me that, you know, because it's Christmas time, but they have the right to conclude and to ask those questions because you say you are a child of God. So they are certainly within their right to do so. Let me conclude by doing this. And I'm going to do this rather quickly, sort of run through the letters of the alphabet. Here's a cue, the letters of the alphabet. You know. <clears throat> and so um, it speaks to what Christmas is. And so as I speak to the attributes, I want to use all the letters of the alphabet. A hint, 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 all the letters of the alphabet. So uh, um, uh, I better need your help. You know, the help I requested earlier, uh, when, I, when I point, you know, I need you to say something. So uh, um, give me an A, because he is Alpha and Omega. Give me a B, because he's blameless in his beauty. Give me a C, because he's compassionate creator of all. Give me a D, he is the desire of all nations. Give me an E, he is the very effulgence or brightness of eternity. Give me an F, he is Father, he is our forgiving Father. Give me a G, he is our God and our guardian. Give me an H. He is our holy healer. Give me an I. He is our invincible inheritance. Give me a J. He is our justifier of the redeemed. Give me a K. He is our king of kings. And give me an F. He is L means he's the Lord. These children, all of anyway. He is, L tells me he is the Lord of lords. Give me an M. He is our majestic majesty. Give me an N. He is the name above all names. Give me an O. He is the omnipotent omega. Give me a P. He is our powerful potentate. Give me a Q. He is the quintessential of all being. Give me an R. He is regal in his righteousness. Give me an S. He is our sovereign shield. Give me a T. He is our transcendent teacher. Give me a U. He is uh, unique in the universe. Give me a V. He is our victorious vine. Give me a W. He is certainly wonderfully wise and worthy. Give me a Y. He is Yahweh. Give me a Z. He is indeed zealous. Give me an X. He is exactly what we need this Christmas. Amen. Amen. May God bless you this morning. I pray that this Christmas, you keep Christ in it. And if you do, you will respond by adoring him today. Let me pray with you. Father, your word tells us that there is, in these days, first, certainly in the last days, you, you've spoken through your son who is indeed the very radiance of your glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. You uphold all things by the word of your power. It is in him alone that is worthy, and that reason why we've come to adore him and to love him, to praise him forever. It is in his name that we pray and celebrate today, because he is indeed the real reason for the season. To you be honor and glory, both now and forevermore. And all of God's children said, Amen. Amen.